If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, March the 19th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover studio here in the heart of campus, of Stanford University's campus, is Alice C. Hill. She is a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution with a focus on building a resilience to stabilize catastrophic events, including the impacts of climate change. Prior to joining Hoover, Alice Hill served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy for the National Security Council. While at the White House, she led the development of national policy regarding national security and climate change, incorporation of climate resilience considerations into international development, federal efforts in the Arctic, building national capabilities for long-term drought resilience, and establishment of national risk management standards for three of the most damaging natural hazards. And what are those three damaging natural hazards, Alice? That would be earthquake, wildfire, and drought. Nothing of which we're familiar with here in California. And I didn't add flood. Flood. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about half the Bible there. Yes. Okay. So, Alice, in early February, the Trump administration unveiled a $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan. That's trillion with a T. Critics quickly jumped on the plan, and they complained about a lack of planning for civil and infrastructure disruptions resulting from extreme weather and a changing climate. In a word resilience. So this word is tossed around a lot in the conversation of climate change resilience. It's an engineering engineering term, I believe. But as we apply this to what you study, what does resilience mean exactly? Resilience in the area of climate change is used often interchangeably with the word adaptation. Essentially, it's adjusting to and preparing for changes that we'll see in our environment as a result of warmer temperatures globally. That could be flood, wildfires, uh, drought, a number of the hazards that we've already just briefly mentioned. So if you're talking about resilience, you want to be resilient to those impacts in order that our economy can continue to thrive, that public health is safe, uh, and that we are adjusting to what we know will occur with all probability as we emit more carbon into the air. And federal agencies cannot agree exactly on what resilience is, right? Resilience has a number of definitions within the federal government. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I first joined the uh, National Security Council, one of the efforts we considered was trying to achieve a single definition for resilience across the federal government. But since you only have a limited time, one only has a limited time in the White House, that didn't seem like the best use of our time. It felt that it was more prudent for us to actually focus on the hazards Mm -hmm. and then help the country come to a path forward as to address the individual hazards that will come from climate change. So you did not achieve a consensus opinion of what resilience means? We didn't even really try it. Uh, it. We just considered it and then uh, felt that given that there were other definitions that were widely used, including Mm -hmm. one that the Rockefeller Foundation for their 100 resilience Cities initiative spent a great deal of time crafting and money investing in. That was not a a definition that we chose. 
Uh, but we felt it just was not a particularly wise use of our time because to get to agreement might have taken the entire uh, course of the Obama administration. If you call a meeting to get consensus on that, though, who sits at the table? Which departments, which agencies do you invite? Uh, in my work on the National Security Council, it was virtually uh, all the agencies, um, the State Department, uh, we had EPA, we had Department of Energy, we had uh, DHS. And so whenever we put forward a new policy in this area, we achieved consensus. That meant that every single agency signed off, which also meant that the career employees had to agree with what we'd done. Because these issues are not of the nature of a highly politicized, salient um, uh, thing that grabs the attention across all departments. It's really that slow, incremental work. And you have to have agreement to achieve what you want, your goal. That is what we had. We had consensus across the federal government. So for example, we created the flood standard, which when it was in place, would have required that uh, any monies taken to build in or near a floodplain would have to be used in a way that was resilient, most specifically to build two to three feet higher, simply to let the waters wash through. 10 days before the uh, Hurricane Harvey hit, President Trump's administration pulled that standard. And there is now no, currently, no standard for use of federal funds in building in a floodplain. Interesting. Uh, we are in a stretch right now in America where we're having a very, very contentious discussion about guns and gun safety and children. And guns are one of the most polarizing topics in America, in American society, in American politics. People on one side want guns out of society. People on the other side cling to guns. Climate change is a similar topic, I think, in this regard, in that people are polarized. Climate change was once called something different, global warming. I think the phrase goes back to the mid-70s. There is an article in Science Magazine which first used uh, global warming. Frank Luntz, a Republican pollster, comes along and he actually suggests let's call it climate change. But when you say climate change, Alice, to some people, them is fighting words. So why are people so polarized on this topic? If I knew, I could solve uh, the challenge that we have ahead of us. No, but, but in your line of work, you must encounter people. You obviously, you believe in climate change. You worked for an administration that believes in climate change. We now have an administration, which we're going to get to in a minute, which wants to avoid climate change discussions. So as you encounter people who disagree with you on this topic, what is their line of disagreement? What, what exactly will they take issue with? Well, I think one thing that I uh, do not believe myself mm -hmm. is that this is a question of belief. Mm -hmm. This is a question of science. And uh, there is a great deal of consensus within the scientific community that temperatures are rising. In my work, uh, we don't typically uh, spend a lot of time talking about why temperatures are rising. And that seems to be more of the issue here uh, that's polarizing. I don't really care what we call this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We can call it global warming. We can call it climate change, extreme weather, it. Whatever terms we want to use uh, don't matter. The critical thing is that we do account for the change going forward as we make investments in infrastructure, for example, 
that may have a service life of 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. If we don't consider the changes to the environment that we can expect during that time frame, we're building a bridge that's too low that will get wiped out in the next flood. Does not make any economic sense for any of us. We won't have that bridge for very long, and certainly our children won't have use of that bridge 100 years from now if we don't plan. Do you think that maybe part of the challenge here is, well, celebrities get involved in the conversation, and when you get Leonardo DiCaprio involved and Arnold Schwarzenegger and so forth, do you think that that perhaps makes opponents of climate change more dug in? In other words, it becomes just yet another political football. If people on the left are pontificating about the topic, people on the right push back against it. You know, I think this is more about generations mm -hmm. than it is about uh, left or right. When I go and speak to young people, there isn't uh, this concern about the use of the term climate change. They get it. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, the Harvard Republican, uh, Young Republican Club, I believe Yale as well, have both come out and said, uh, right. we want to address this issue. So this is really, in my experience, a generational factor. Okay. And I have a theory on that, in that most people over 40 have had no formal training, no formal education in climate change. What they've learned about climate change, global warming, it, whatever we call it, has been through a very polarized media. And that, I think, has undermined the understanding of the issue. All right, so you're saying that, that the, the Z class and the Y classes in society, they are, they are not pro-climate change, but they believe in the science. But you're suggesting boomers, that the skepticism begins with boomers. I don't know where exactly the cutoff is, but I can tell you when I walk into a room of young people, mm -hmm. their questions are uh, detailed. They're very knowledgeable about what's going to happen and what their concerns are about our policies going forward. When I walk into a room of uh, people, uh, as I said, over 40, mm -hmm. generally there's uh, body language that's less receptive, mm -hmm. uh, and their questions are still about whether this is occurring. Our observational uh, information from uh, observations since uh, we started in 1880, have confirmed that we have changed already, and then looking at the path going forward, that change will accelerate. So to be discussing whether it's happening is an indication to me that uh, perhaps the science isn't as familiar to those individuals as it is to young people who've had uh, more formal education in this issue. And what about the most elderly Americans, and uh, uh, Alice, who may be the most furthest removed from education, but on the other hand, they might be thinking legacy and generations and what planet they leave behind. Where, where do you find they come down on this? I think that uh, those that are following it closely are, we see very um, uh, articulate uh, statements. Uh, Bill McKibben, others are very passionate about it, in terms of future generations, James Hansen, uh, one of the first climate scientists to speak about the danger. So I think that those who have looked at it uh, have uh, stated their concern for future generations. We do need to be very concerned about the impacts on the elderly. Mm -hmm. They will suffer uh, considerably because of the heat we saw with Harvey, uh, those uh, 
poor seniors in the home that was flooded that were unable to move. Right. And then we know that heat is a big killer, particularly for the elderly and the young. With climate change, one thing for sure, we're going to have more extremes, longer periods of hot weather. Right. It's also heat, but it's also disruption of society. If you're elderly and you're trapped and you can't move, you can't get to a hospital to get dialysis, you can't get access to water, and you're frail, and you, you will suffer. Yes, and, and we have learned that the health care industry is particularly vulnerable in terms of extreme events. With Sandy, you'll recall that we lost power in lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. That meant that our hospitals began to fail. You mentioned dialysis. We learned that dialysis treatment is very decentralized. Right. So those patients couldn't get treatment during that time with no electricity. They couldn't get to those um, shopping center dialysis um, treatment areas. And also we evacuated 6,000 patients down darkened stairwells with flashlights. We learned that you should not put your intensive care units at the top of a multi-story building because to evacuate those patients is very difficult, very hard on everyone. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned Sandy, which was back in 2012. It was right on the eve of the election. A superstorm, right? Superstorm. When it hit, it was not a hurricane when it hit uh, uh, the east coast of the that, United States, but it was very broad in its swath. That was swath. my question. What is a superstorm? I think that's the first time I've ever heard the phrase when it was applied to Sandy, superstorm Sandy. Superstorm Sandy uh, references that it was a very powerful storm, even though it didn't uh, meet the technical definition when it a actually landed in the United States for as a hurricane. Mm -hmm. Now, this has uh, litigation consequences for insurance companies and others uh, as to what the wind speeds were and, and those kinds of things. But it that's why it's called Superstorm Sandy. It was a hurricane when it was offshore, but right. once it hit the United States, it became the wind, uh, it was the wind speed had lowered to the point where yes. it's not a hurricane. But you mentioned insurance. Does your insurance actually apply to hurricanes or just wind damage? Uh, what causes the damage in your home may affect the application of the insurance or not. So, and also how it comes in may uh, affect. Uh, what it's termed may affect whether it um, is covered or not. So there become there's lots of litigation after these storms mm -hmm. uh, as to who's going to pay for the damage, what was known, and what caused it. So uh, as a former lawyer, I know that uh, this can be an area where uh, time is spent in the courtroom uh, at expense to uh, pretty much everyone uh, to try to figure it out. Speaking of Sandy and storms, if you had the money, would you buy a beach house in America? That's a... Single question that I most asked, uh, and I would say I would, the one thing I've learned is I will never buy in a floodplain. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten deeper into this area, I would advise don't buy anywhere near a floodplain. And the reason for that is our flood maps, which are produced by FEMA, are out of date pretty much. Uh, we saw that uh, with the recent hurricanes. Uh, we were surprised by uh, floods occurring outside the flood zone or the flood uh, mapping area. Really, uh, the rate of sea level rise in particular will uh, accelerate in coming years. NOAA, in January of this year, put out a study that said the state of Rhode Island could be looking at as much as nine feet of sea level rise by 2100. That will not come in on New Year's Eve. Uh, 
of, uh, of 2099. Um, it will be gradual, and it will, by 2050, there will already be very severe impacts. Extreme precipitation, like what we saw with Harvey, will occur with more frequency uh, than it did, for example, 100 years ago. So um, those types of events, you should be watching very closely uh, your flood risk, that is the most uh, damaging impact from climate change. I have family that lives on the uh, coast of North Carolina and the coast of South Carolina, and to the extent they've looked around at real estate opportunities, realtors have two rather morbid jokes. One is don't buy on the beach by three or four rows back because as time goes by, that fourth row is going to become a third row, is going to become a second row. And the other one is in the spirit of uh, sell high and buy low, wait until the next storm to buy. I think that would be all, all uh, very accurate. Uh, we do see uh, there is some concern that the real estate market is not yet accurately reflecting the risk because mm -hmm. of what we've discussed, right. the political discussion, this polarization, uh, this distrust that uh, the phenomenon may even be occurring. Right. So when you discuss risk, you mean people just are not properly insured for the damage that's inevitably going to become, or if this become a federal issue in terms of FEMA having to come in and pick up the, pick up the money and or? Well, we have a national flood insurance program that is bankrupt, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the federal government continues uh, to support it. The rates that are currently charged are, for the most part, not actuarially sound. So the federal government is subsidizing flood insurance in areas that are prone to flooding. Right. And we also have a provision that allows us or permits payment for repeat flooding events. So you might have had a home that's flooded 10 times. It's worth $150,000, and we paid out over a million dollars during the, the lifetime of these events. That is of concern, but the maximum payout under the National Flood Insurance Program is only $250,000. So for some of these coastal areas, that's really uh, not going to make uh, right. people whole. Instead, what's happened is the federal government has done bailouts, uh, and as we saw with the recent um, hurricane events. Right. None of this is signaling properly uh, the risk, and the question is who's going to own uh, that risk. Right now, much of it falls on the federal government. Mm -hmm. And um, if you have a 30-year mortgage and your house uh, will be flooded out so it's uninhabitable within the life of that mortgage, uh, there is some question, should the federal government be insuring those mortgages anymore? We saw after the uh, 2008 uh, meltdown that uh, many people stayed in their homes, uh, even though they were underwater financially. But if your house is truly underwater from flood, uh, you're not going to be staying there, and there'll be presumably no payments on that loan. When I worked in a state government here in California, Alice, I worked for Pete Wilson when he was governor, and Pete Wilson just sort of had a lot of bad luck when it came to disasters. He had a big earthquake in 1994. He had fires uh, to deal with in the Oakland Hills. And almost every year, it seemed he would have rain to deal with floods. And we had sort of a, he had sort of a morbid sense of humor about it after a while. We would, we always had a denim jacket ready for him because politicians, when they go out to, you know, use, you know, disasters, they can't go out wearing a suit. They have to, you know, look like they blend in. So we always had a casual jacket for him. And so when it was raining like crazy in Sacramento and he knew it was flooding, so we'd walk in with the jacket, he'd look at them and he'd say, let me guess, we're going to Guerneville. 
Gordonville is on the Russian River in Sonoma, and it's down the river. And so as the river floods and builds up a mighty crest heading toward the ocean, the good people of Gordonville just get socked. And so with regularity, they are four, five, six feet underwater. So <laughs> that's always his reaction. Let me guess we're going to Gordonville. Well, uh, after drought, there's often fire uh, as well, uh, and then there is water, which can cause mudslides and flooding. Right. Uh, So I do think uh, as California goes forward, uh, we will see cycles of drought and then followed by flooding. Uh, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we need to start thinking about how we build in order to protect uh, the structures that we do build, build in a fire-resistant way and a flood-resistant way, and then to the extent that communities are repeatedly hit by these events, have a uh, frank discussion about land use policies and where it makes sense to make future investments. So I think this is an enormous sleeper issue in California because if you saw vis-a-vis the fires in Sonoma around Santa Rosa and then the mudslides down in Montecito, it's an issue fundamentally of livability. People are building, especially the case of Santa Rosa, Alice, people are moving away from San Francisco in search of one thing, affordable housing. So they're building further and further out, and they're on a collision course with nature. And, you know, invariably you're going to get a fire where they are, just as you're going to get mud in Montecito. And the California bargain is it'll come, we'll rebuild, we'll move on. But it's a cycle, and it's a cycle that you just wonder if the state and the federal government can continue on because it ends up costing a lot of money. Certainly, there's a lot of area for policy to be made, um, and one of the things that we focused on when I was working with President Obama's team was, if you're going to ask for federal money, we want to, to on behalf of the federal taxpayers, make sure that you spend it resiliently. Right. And that includes for the federal government's own assets. So in the case of wildfire, Uh, What it's called is the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface. It turns out many of us um, want to live in the Mm WUI. In fact, I think about a third of the population in California lives in the WUI, which puts you at greater uh, risk for wildfire. Mm -hmm. So the federal government, one of the standards that we worked on was to require all federal assets within the WUI to be fire resistant. Because if the fire comes, we want the federal government to be there, right. operational, to help the people. And if our facilities burn down, then nothing is left. So uh, that's an example of the federal government taking care of itself. Uh, and then with the flood standard, we said if you want to build in a flood zone, you need to make sure that that structure is going to survive because the taxpayer investment should survive. Okay, let's get away from California and back to Washington for a moment. Last Thursday, Alice, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, for those who hear that uh, anagram, FEMA released a document, the Strategic Plan, uh, outlining building preparedness and reducing complexity of the agency. In it was this phrase, quote, rising natural hazard risk. Let me repeat that, rising natural hazard risk. But it didn't explain what that is. So tell me what they mean by rising natural hazard risk. Are they, are they trying to say the double C word without saying the double C word? In my belief, yes. Uh, they did not say climate change in that document, which is um, surprising omission, right. given that uh, one of the contributing factors to rising risk is, in fact, warming temperatures. Uh, So it's difficult for FEMA, as we mentioned earlier, how high do you build that bridge? Uh, It's difficult for FEMA to 
uh, think through right. what that looks like without addressing the risk from climate change. Exactly. There is a section in that report, Alice, called Emerging Threats, and it cites cybersecurity. It cites terrorism. There is not a reference to global warming, rising sea levels, extreme weather events, or any other term related to the potential impact of rising surface temperatures. Why won't the Trump administration go there? This administrator of FEMA has uh, indicated that he is somewhat uh, skeptical about climate change. And who is he? Um, uh, Brock, Administrator Brock. Um, right. And uh, the former administrator, Craig Fugate, um, uh, was very upfront about the risk, uh, not talking about the cause, but talking about the risk. I do think this is a political change. Mm -hmm. I think that you've seen it across the board in the uh, this administration's reaction to climate change. They've removed the mention of climate change in a number of websites. They've uh, reassigned climate scientists away from working on climate change issues. Uh, they've uh, reduced the funding for climate science. Uh, and they have, uh, as I've said, repealed some of uh, President Obama's work on ensuring that the United States is prepared for the impacts of climate change, including uh, national security risks posed by climate change impacts worldwide. Increased flooding causes more migration, which can uh, lead to destabilizing countries. And if those countries are of strategic interest to us, we need to be paying attention to drought, uh, to the other challenges that are coming forward from the national security community. But similarly to the FEMA strategy, our national security strategy did not mention climate change. So this does appear to be simply a political uh, change in views. The science doesn't change. Mm -hmm. That's the remarkable thing. At least the observations that we've had to date will not change. Uh, and although on the margins, the predictions of how this will play out will surely alter over time, the fact of climate change is uh, not, warmer temperatures certainly, is not really uh, seriously debated among any other countries except the United States. Right. 192 countries joined that Paris Agreement. We're the only one that's pulled out. So when we finish this podcast, you're going to scoot out of here and you're going to jump on a plane and go to Washington, D.C., and then you're going to come back across the country to Aspen. What are you doing in Aspen? I am uh, working with the Aspen Institute uh, on behalf of the Hoover Institution to direct more attention to the issues that challenge us with regard to the changing environment in the national security sphere. Mm -hmm. So we will bring together uh, retired uh, military officers, four stars, three stars, uh, as well as academicians who look at issues of for example, changes in, in watersheds uh, where there's decreased access to water, fresh water, uh, flooding risk in certain areas of the uh, globe that will cause uh, people to move, food insecurity that results from drought uh, and changing weather patterns that also causes uh, destabilizing impacts often uh, in countries that may be of concern to us or of strategic interest to us. We will bring together uh, a group of thoughtful leaders to determine an agenda for further research and further engagement. 
The National uh, Intelligence Council in September 2016 issued a report noting the significant challenges to the United States uh, from climate change in the next 20 years, not far off, and also noted that there was a remarkable lack of research on this issue. And uh, we are the group uh, that will convene. Uh, the Aspen Hoover group want to take up that mantle and find ways to help United States be better prepared as well as our allies for the stresses and strains that will be caused by these extreme events. So you'll talk about it, you will research, and ultimately you will come up with a document, something to present to our leaders. If you have an administration, though, that is not going to recognize climate change, Alice, how would you proceed with this in Washington? Would you look toward the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and Congress? Would you work the media channels? Would you work around the United States and go to other nations? How, how would you get this conversation moving? Well, all of the above. Uh don't forget that, uh, and I was a career federal employee, uh, I've also been a political appointee. The career federal employees uh, who uh, follow the science and have worked on these issues continue to work to try to make sure that the United States is doing what it needs to do to be prepared. So certainly they are part of this audience, and that is particularly true when it comes to the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. uh, Department of Defense needs to be operationally ready. They've already, uh, for example, just in the last few weeks, the Government Accountability Office has uh, issued a report indicating that the Department of Defense is not sufficiently prepared for the flood risks that were, uh, they will experience worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that we can't be operationally ready if we are uh, experiencing flooding that prevents, uh, for example, employees getting to the bases or uh, actually deploying our assets uh, in time of crisis. So that uh, is one area. Uh, and then uh, we will continue to hope to engage the uh, American public so that they are invested in this very important issue. This is uh, a problem that will be with us. It's not going away. Uh, and uh, as the impacts continue to unfold, 2017 gave us quite a, insight, a view of what we have ahead. Uh, the worst year ever for natural disasters and uh, climate change events, $303 billion spent. Similarly, worldwide, we had the greatest losses of insurance ever from 2017. So these uh, losses affect our economic strength, uh, and they also have uh, real uh, pressures on our hard security, our ability to operate, and then our ability to provide humanitarian assistance, as well as uh, protect our borders and ourselves from any fallout from these events. Two questions. I'll let you go first. Where do you get your information? I always try to ask this of fellows who come in here and do these podcasts, being an economist, an education specialist, foreign policy specialist, or in your case, what you study with disaster preparedness. Where do you turn to on a daily basis to read about what's going on? What academic quarters do you turn to? There are a number of uh, websites run by Harvard, Columbia, an environmental uh, news site that I check uh, virtually daily. One of the exciting things about this terribly challenging problem is that 
Uh, the interest is growing, so there's uh, every day there's almost uh, some new development. Uh, and the science actually is becoming more refined, so peer-reviewed uh, science is issued very frequently. One word of caution for anyone here is the, and I see this among uh, some uh, persons who write in this area, a reliance on the IPCC reports, which are excellent reports, but you have to keep in mind that those reports are consensus-based, so that means that they reflect 192 nations' uh, agreement as to what uh, is going to happen, and in my experience with consensus, that means that we sometimes understate the risk. Uh, and similarly, um, it is based on peer-reviewed science. Uh, they only, the reports do not come out with a great deal of frequencies, and so the peer-reviewed science may be quite old. Uh, people who work in this area will say that uh, you need to be looking at science that, uh, or work that's been done at least in the last three to five years. Um, and uh, Stephen Chu, a Nobel-winning uh, uh, scientist who was uh, Secretary of the Department of Energy, says you shouldn't rely on anything that's more than a year old uh, because our understanding is exploding uh, as to what is occurring. The one consistent or relatively consistent thing that I've seen in the uh, almost 10 years I've been working on this issue is that um, things are worse than what those IPCC reports reflected. So uh, everyone should keep in mind uh, that we need an insurance policy against the worst case. That's what George Schultz says. Uh, and I believe he's absolutely right. When in doubt, believe George Schultz. <laughs> I, that's a word to, words to live by. Final question, Alice. Uh, the young man or woman out there listening to this who is thinking about what they want to be in life, and they decide they want to be Alice Hill. They want to study disaster preparedness. They want to go into government. Perhaps one day they want to follow some academia. What should they be studying in college? To focus on this issue, I think we'll uh, ensure that you're part of the Full Employment Act because uh, there will be issues about climate change threats in the health sector, in the transportation sector, in the electric grid, uh, in acad academic climate science. You name it, uh, you will be able to find an area. That's what is so attractive about for me about working in this field is that Climate affects virtually everything, so we need to think about it through all disciplines. Mm -hmm. So I think there'll be plenty of opportunities for individuals who have some expertise. One of the challenges with this area is that uh, I call it a barrier to entry. It does take some study uh, about what is occurring to understand uh, where the areas of uncertainty are and where uh, we are more certain and therefore can plan better. I think that uh, keeping uh, a curious mind, uh, a willingness to ask questions, and a sense of uh, continuing to increase one's knowledge and scope of understanding will hold anyone in good stead. Uh, and I know most immediately, if you're in law school, there are going to be a lot of opportunities uh, in this area because uh, climate litigation has um, really uh, taken off in ways that uh, were just not true a decade ago. 
So you could study undergrad, you could go to a graduate policy school, you could go to a graduate law school, you could do this in different ways. Uh, I believe so, but I would recommend um, increasing one's knowledge about uh, how climate change affects various areas so that you can bring that expertise um, to a city planner, to uh, a, a government, to a corporation who's, that's looking not only at their own assets, but their long-term investments. Right. So they can ask questions, does it make sense for us to be investing in that community that may be underwater in 20 years or certainly in 40 years unless there's an investment that is not right now on the horizon? These are going to be very hard questions for all of us to address. But if we don't start now, I don't think that that will uh, leave us sufficiently prepared. Okay. You should teach a class. <laughs> <laughs> I have done a lot of teaching in the past. I certainly enjoy it. And um, one of the areas that I, uh, in the future, that I would like to teach is uh, climate adaptation from a legal perspective, because uh, the challenges that are unfolding are both about how do you um, stop the emissions? That's a one large uh, set of cases, but also what does adaptation look like on the ground? And my choice to protect my home may be not so good uh, when you are looking next door as to what effects will happen to your home. Uh, and we're going to need to sort out how do we make decisions that don't hurt each other as we protect our assets. Okay. Alice, I enjoyed the conversation, and good luck getting the ball rolling in Aspen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. What a pleasure. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Alice Hill and her colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Alice Hill is on Twitter, and her Twitter feed is at Alice underscore C underscore Hill. Let me repeat that at Alice underscore C underscore Hill. There's more than one Alice Hill on Twitter, I guess. That's right. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to mention while you're here? Uh, I don't think it's Administrator Brock. I think it's Administrator Brock Long, uh, but uh, uh, we'll have to uh, double-check that. Very good. Thank for, you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.